Heavenly Father, we've uh, just come into this place today in great anticipation of your presence, uh, that you would join us here and that you would teach us, speak to us, and allow us, frankly, to grow closer to you. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit in the time to come. Be with us, open our ears and our hearts, that we may indeed listen in for your voice and grow closer to you. We pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen. So uh, a few weeks ago, I decided to take a trip down memory lane, and I dug out an old collection that I have. And maybe you've done this uh, a time or two where you used to have a hobby, right, that you followed maybe pretty passionately for a while, but at some point you gave it up, and then one day you just kind of get the idea to dig out your old stuff and try it again, right? So you pull out the fishing rod from uh, the garage, or you put on the sneakers and you go for a hike, or you grab an old book that you used to like, something that you haven't done in a long time, and you do it kind of just for the sake of nostalgia, right? And, and usually what happens when we do that is we do it for about five minutes, and then we go, oh, that's right, that's why I gave that up, <laughs> and then we don't do it again for another 10 years. But I did that this week, um, or a few weeks ago, rather, when I pulled out my old collection of trading cards. Anybody ever collect trading cards? You have binders full of, of baseball cards or whatever it might be. From the time I was about eight until I was 12, uh, I collected football cards. And so I pulled them out and I was kind of going through them. And I think right now I have uh, about 5,000 cards. But trust me, most, most of them are worthless. <laughs> for every card that I have that's worth a few bucks, I have 100 more, right, that I probably couldn't sell for a penny. But it's kind of fun to go back and page through the old, old cards that you haven't seen in a long time. And as I was paging through the binders, it struck me that most of what I have aren't really worth anything. And that's because no one today really remembers most of the players that played back then, right? When I collected 20 years ago, most of those players we don't even remember. Uh, here's a card that I have uh, that maybe you might recognize the name if you're a diehard Steelers fan. Mark Bruner. Raise your hand if you know who that is. One person, two people. <laughs> The diehard Steelers fans in the congregation today. I checked on eBay. You can get 35 of his cards today for $1.98. <laughs> and so clearly no one but the most diehard Steelers fans can probably tell you much about his career, who he was, or how he played. And those of you that did remember him, you probably haven't heard that name in about a decade, right? More than 24,000 men have played in the NFL and the average person, right, so not, not Mr. I'm on the couch from 1 to 11 p.m. every Sunday with my foam finger and my Steelers jersey on, but the, the average person could name what out of those 24,000? 10, 3, 20, 50, if we're lucky. And these are men, right, who have spent every year of their first few decades of their lives honing a specific skill, trying to become the best in the world at what they do, who eventually became professional athletes, which is one of the most coveted positions in our entire culture. And yet the most knowledgeable amongst us could name probably, what, 1% of that 24,000? And you can extend that into any other area of life, right? The, the wealthiest CEOs, pop stars, politicians, athletes, whoever you might think of, in a few decades and especially in a few centuries, all but a very, very select few, right, will never be mentioned 
again. And if this is true, right, for people who had a moment of fame, who maybe played in front of tens of thousands or were followed by millions, how much more will that be true for you and I, who live mostly in obscurity? That there will become a day in the not-too-distant future when our names are never mentioned again. Now, that might scare us a little bit. That might be a little spooky uh, to think about. Because we all like to think that we'll always be loved and cherished and remembered by everyone. But the truth is, is that if you're like 99.99999% of people who have ever lived, that simply won't be the case. And so today we're going to talk about what we should be concerned about leaving behind. Not because it's going to help people remember us, it probably won't, but because it's what really counts at the end of the day. And so we've been in this series called Won't You Be My Neighbor, uh, where we've been focusing on the calling that Jesus puts in all of our lives to love God and to love our neighbors. Uh, And this is the last week of that series. And so to really kind of land the series that we've been in, I'd like to just go back to the beginning for a few minutes, to that initial encounter that we talked about with Jesus back in week one of the series where he gives us this command to love our neighbor and to love God. And so if you weren't here a few weeks ago or you just aren't familiar with the story, kind of here's what's happening. This story is in three of the four Gospels, and Jesus is being questioned, uh, and I'm preaching mostly from Matthew 22, but like I said, it's in the other Gospels as well. He's being questioned by a group called the Pharisees and a group called the Sadducees. And just to give you a little bit more context, The Sadducees were a group of Jewish leaders uh, who took the law, so the first five books of the Bible that were written by Moses, they took the law really, really seriously. So the, the sacrifices, the holy days, the commands, everything that was in the Torah, those first five books, all of it was really important to the Sadducees, and they followed it directly to the letter of the law. The second group, the Pharisees, were another group of Jewish leaders, and they took the law really seriously as well, but they kind of added on to it with what was known as the, the oral tradition. And the oral tradition were other rules and other laws that, had, that, had, that the Jewish community had come up with over time that they added to those from the Torah. And so they took those laws very seriously as well. And truthfully, these two groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they had their own issues with each other. Uh, They fought all the time back in Jesus' day, but when Jesus showed up on the scene, they kind of took the, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend approach, because they both had an issue with Jesus, and so they decided um, we're just going to kind of tag team and gang up on Jesus together despite our differences with one another. And so you'll notice throughout the Gospels that it's these two groups that are constantly questioning Jesus, and they're trying over and over again to trip him up. They're either trying to find a question that he can't answer, or they're trying to get him to say something that they can use against him to discredit him. And they get more and more frustrated as the Gospels go on because Jesus is always one step ahead, right? Jesus was always really good at that. Whenever they throw something at them, he's always way out in front. They're still playing checkers. He's playing like 4D chess. And so in this story, Jesus has already been pitched a question about marriage by the Pharisees. They tried to trap him with that, and he answers it and shuts them down. And so it's like, okay, next man up. And so the Sadducees send up a lawyer. 
somebody who was an expert in the law, whose day-to-day life was just filled with uh, learning and examining and memorizing the Torah. And so they're bringing out kind of the big guns for this encounter with Jesus. And the question that he asks is this. He looks at Jesus and he says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, this question that he asks isn't one that's unique to this particular situation. This is actually a question that Jewish leaders in Jesus' day debated all the time. They would speak on this, they would talk about it, they would teach their other disciples what it meant. And so they ask, which command is the greatest? But here's what they're hoping. They're hoping, the Sadducees, that Jesus is going to kind of come out of left field with some kind of brand new teaching or something that they've never heard before, something outside of those books of Moses, those first five books of the Bible. Because like I said, they took those five books very seriously. And so if you ever quoted from anything outside of those five books to teach, right, what are the greatest commandments, they would basically be able to discredit you with at least half the crowd that's standing there. But Jesus doesn't fall into their trap. Again, he's one step ahead. And so he responds to their question with words that Moses wrote from the book of Deuteronomy. What he says is, whoops, one more, there we go. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. And so he responds to their question using the words of Moses. And then he actually adds to it, and he goes again to Moses, and he pulls from Leviticus chapter 19, and he says, and the second command is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so in these two quotes, both of which were known by everybody standing there that day, Jesus has basically summed up the entirety of the Jewish faith and disarmed this trap that the Sadducees and the Pharisees has set for them. But what he does is he adds one more line to this, and this is where I want to camp out for just a few minutes. Jesus says, all the law, so the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, which is the rest of the Old Testament, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So everything in the entire Old Testament, the entire content of the Jewish faith, hangs on these two commands, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And to give you a little bit of context um, and a little bit of perspective on why this is a bombshell for the people listening, there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. I don't know if you guys knew that or not, but there's a lot. We think of like the Ten Commandments, that's the law. No, there are 613. There are 365 prohibitions. So um, 365, you can't do this. And there are 248 commands. So 248, you should do this. And what Jesus says is that if you want to understand all 613 of these laws, you have to look at them through the lens of these two. Love God with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, unfortunately for us, there's really nothing in our lives that comes close to the the complexity and the importance of the Jewish law and and the the place that it had for Jews in Jesus's day. And so it's really hard for us to wrap our heads around what Jesus is doing here. There's there's no law, there's no religious code that we follow that's anywhere near as strenuous or anywhere near as complicated or as in-depth 
as that law that Jesus was talking about. And so there's really no parallel that we can draw. But think of it this way. Imagine for a second that somebody took uh, the iTunes agreement and the tax code uh, and every classroom rule you learned from kindergarten onward and boiled them down to two rules. That's basically what we're talking about. That amount of content, that amount of commentary, and taking it down to just these two. And so you can imagine how scandalous that would be for the Sadducees and the Pharisees to hear, because their lives were the law. I mean, if those laws didn't exist, this lawyer that's questioning Jesus would be out of a job, right? Because you take that 613 that he's an expert in and you take it down to two, you can take that guy off the payroll. But you can also think about how freeing this would be, right, for the crowds that are listening in. Because they had been overwhelmed and they had been oppressed by the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they would use the law to take advantage of the common person. And so Jesus takes all of this that's kind of out there in in the air around the crowds and around the Sadducees and Pharisees and he reframes all of it. And he says the purpose of those other laws in the Old Testament even existing was to show you Pharisees and to show you Sadducees and to show you Jewish people that they were there to show you how to best love God and love your neighbor. God was showing you how to be in right relationship with him and right relationship with others through those laws. And what you've done as Pharisees and as Sadducees is you've taken those rules and you've made them the focus in and of themselves. Somewhere along the line, you lost the plot. And you elevated the law and the prophets above the people that they were meant to help you love in the first place. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's calling these two groups and he's calling us back to God's heart. And he says, following the commands are important. They're there for a reason, but the love that they are meant to show your neighbor and love that they're meant to show God is really what's at the heart and is really what lasts. He uses uh, the metaphor that the law and the prophets hang on loving God and loving people. And I want us to just sit with that image for a second. All of us have probably hung something, right, in in our houses. Uh, We've hung a picture. We've hung curtains. uh, We've hung a door. A few weeks ago, I I hung a rope swing in our backyard. And one of the things uh, that you have to make sure of when you're hanging something is that whatever you're hanging it from can support the weight of what's hanging, right? That's a really important consideration when you hang stuff. So I had to make sure um, that that branch that we were hanging that swing from could support my 200 pounds before I sat on it and trusted it with my life, or at least trusted it with my tailbone, Um, because if not, that would have been a tough fall. And essentially what Jesus is pointing out here is that these 600 plus laws in the Old Testament, the only two that can bear the weight of everything else are these two. Love neighbor, love God. The full weight of God's mission in the world, the full weight of the history of God's people, they can't hang, they can't be supported or held up by anything other than love of God and love of neighbor. And so can your dietary law that you've been following so closely, can that hold up the law and the prophets? Jesus says no. Can your immaculate attendance at synagogue hold up the law and the prophets? No. Can the animal sacrifices you do and the holy days you observe, can they hold up the law and the prophets? Jesus says no. 
But love, love of God, love of neighbor, that's what lasts. That can support the full weight of who God calls them and who God calls us to be. And so we started this morning um, talking about how eventually our lives right, are going to pass into history, just like everybody else's. Uh, and how most of us want to leave something behind us in this world that reminds people that we were here. We want to leave a mark in some way or another. But unfortunately, most, uh, most of us go about that the wrong way. We think that leaving a legacy means leaving money, or leaving possessions, or maybe even leaving behind a few things that were meaningful to us. And those things are good in the short term, but let me just throw a couple facts out there for you. 70% of wealthy families lose their wealth by the second generation of inheritance. Which means that if you make enough money to be considered wealthy, and most of us won't ever get there anyway, but if you make enough to be considered wealthy, there's a 70% chance that your grandchildren won't see any of it. And 90% of wealthy families lose their wealth by the third generation. So even if you have a lot of money and you leave a lot of money as your legacy, there's a 90% chance that all of it is going to be gone within 50 years. And so sometimes we don't think about leaving behind money, but maybe just things, things of meaning. And you know as well as I do that eventually those things lose their meaning by the second and third generation as well. And so sentimentality, much like money, simply doesn't last. Basically what I'm telling you is that your grandkids are ungrateful brats that don't care about you. <laughs> That's not true, but at the same time, right, these things that we think about, about legacy, leaving legacy, are not things that actually make a mark. And so if we want to make our mark, we want to leave something behind that's bigger than wealth or possessions or sentimentality and warm, fuzzy feelings. We need to leave behind something that lasts. <clears throat> and as you look at these two verses that Jesus used to summarize the law, the, those verses on which all the law and the prophets hang, those verses are about legacy. When you look at them in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, it's all about leaving behind something that matters for the next generation so that they can follow it too. Look, it says, these are the commands, the decrees, and the laws your God directed me to teach you so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord. And so God is saying to Israel, this is what it means to be my people. Your legacy as a people will be to show the world my love for you by loving them. To show the world my love for you by loving your neighbors well. And that definition of neighbor, thankfully, expanded over time. At first, it was just other Jews. That was the Jewish neighbor, was other people in their own community. Then eventually, they extended it to aliens and to immigrants, so people who had come into their land from the outside. Then eventually, it included people who converted to Judaism. Those were the neighbors. Until finally, Jesus, in the story of the Good Samaritan that Ken talked about at the beginning of the series, Jesus expands this definition of neighbor to literally everyone, every image-bearing human being that exists on the planet. Now, I know that um, <clears throat> one of the things that I've learned about a lot of us being your pastor and through discussions in Alpha and Bible study and other places, is that some of us aren't confident enough in our Christianity uh, to put it out front in our lives and to, and to try to influence our neighbors in a way that we 
can help them grow closer to God. We don't think we know enough about what it means to be a Christian to leave this spiritual legacy. Because we're afraid that if we put our faith up front and somebody challenges us and we don't have the answer or, we don't, or we're not able to answer their challenges, then we might actually do more harm in the long run. But the good news, the good news here is that Jesus summarizing the law and the prophets, Jesus giving us the greatest commandment, is kind of the cheat sheet for how we're supposed to live as Christians. You don't have to know much, but you have to be able to demonstrate your love for God and your love for others, and that's it. If you can demonstrate your love for God and your love for others, Jesus says, that's enough. Now, that doesn't mean we give up trying to understand the rest. Part of loving God is, is trying to understand him and, and obey him further. And so hopefully down the road we have more answers than we have now. But Jesus makes this very simple. He says, love. Love God. Love your neighbor. Now, the definition of love has, has shifted over time in our culture. Um, and right now, when we define love, it usually has to do with our feelings. Uh, if I have strong enough feelings or strong enough emotions about something or towards someone, then that is what it means to love. But the biblical definition of love that Jesus is speaking about here isn't one that's centered in feelings or emotions. Love, in this sense, means being committed. Committed to the good of the other. And when we say the good of someone else, we don't mean just being nice, right? Because sometimes seeking the good of another person, parents, you know this, that it means sometimes having tough conversations and challenging people and pushing them forward into things that they didn't know that they could do. Sometimes it involves seeking the good of the other, involves having awkward conversations about Jesus that they may or may not be receptive to. But I can guarantee you that when your neighbors see you committed to your walk with God, committed to God, loving God, and when they see that you are committed to their good, that you're willing to care for them and sacrifice for them, invite them into your life in a way that 99% of your other neighbors are not willing to do, they will see that love. And that is just the beginning of a legacy that will bring to light the love of Christ in their lives. And if we're seeking the good of our neighbors, the best thing we can do is bring Jesus. I once heard a pastor uh, named Reggie Joyner speak, and he said that three things are true. You will die sooner than you think, you will be forgotten, and you will only be remembered by the people you know now. He's a very uplifting guy. <laughs> And I think all of those things are probably true, but if we take that third one, that you will only be remembered by the people you know, you will only leave a legacy with the people you know, we have to seriously examine whether or not we are leaving behind with the people we know those two great commandments. Did you know that in the last 12 hours in our country there have been two mass shootings? 10 people dead in Oregon, 20 in El Paso. Did you know that suicide rates in our country are up 33% in the last 20 years? Did you know that amongst teenagers, depression is 60% higher than it was 20 years ago? There are so many in this world that desperately need someone to love them, that desperately need a relationship, 
that desperately need to know and hear about this God who loves them. And so many of us are busy building bigger barns and focusing on what we've got going on and worried about our busy lives and what we're up to. That the church neglects this God-given command to love our neighbors and be the light of the world. And the thing is, is that there is no plan B. The church is God's plan A, B, and C to love the world. And so many of us are neglecting to love our neighbors and to show them the love of God. And so I ask, are we teaching our children how to love God? Not just to know who he is, not just to believe in him, but to really love God through Christ. Are we committed in that love sense to our neighbors? Willing to walk with our coworkers and our acquaintances and the people we see out and about and seeking their good at our own expense and bringing it all the way back around to our series for the last four weeks, are we living this legacy with our literal neighbors? Do the people who live next to us know more about what it means to love God and love one another because simply we live close to them? We all want to leave a legacy. And some things, our accomplishments, our achievements, our money, even our values, they might last a generation or two. But when we pass down the greatest commandments, when we teach our family and our friends and our neighbors what it means to love God and love one another, it's something that has the capacity to change lives now, to change future generations, and can change eternity for each person who learns to really love God. And that, in my mind, is a legacy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we just give you thanks for your teaching. Uh, that most of us are just, we're all born sinful, and we're just all born selfish, and we're all just born looking inward and turned inward, Lord. And yet through your teaching and your presence with us and your salvation of us, you teach us to look outward, um, to, to not focus on ourselves, but to focus on this world which you love. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit, uh, that we would just see the need around us and see those that are hurting and see those that need to be loved and need to know of your love, and that you would encourage us and strengthen us and empower us to be the people that step in and love them. God, allow, God allow us to be messengers, um, representatives, image bearers, likeness bearers of who you are in our communities, and allow us to be good neighbors, and may we give glory to you because of that good neighboring. And so, Lord, we would just turn our prayers for a moment to, to all those who are affected um, by those shootings in the last 24 hours. Um, there's so much violence that goes on, not only in our country, but around the world each and every day. Sometimes it feels overwhelming, Lord. Sometimes the darkness just feels so dark. But we know that you are the light of the world. You have called us to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us and, and teach us ways to shine light into this darkness. And that we might be people that love our neighbors in such a way that no one would ever feel the need to harm anyone else again. And so, Lord, we pray that you be with us as we go forward, continue to teach us how to follow you well and follow you closely as we pray the prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom Amen. Now I invite you to stand as we say together the 